Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Welcome to a very special episode of Still Watching. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson, and joining me, who's joining me? Who is there? Who's over um, there? Vanity Fair correspondent Anthony Bresnikan. Oh, <laughs> our man in the outer rim, Anthony Bresnikan. <laughs> uh, Anthony and I are here to talk by popular demand. Honestly, I had no idea that people wanted us to talk about this as much as they did. But it's by- so nice. It's, it's so nice to know that people. Uh... People wanted to hear our thoughts, and and we're really living up to the uh, title of this program. We're still watching. We just haven't been hearing from us. Yeah, so we are going to talk about The Mandalorian um, this week on Still Watching, and Anthony and I are going to record one more after the finale, after it's all wrapped up. There's only two more episodes of the season, but we today are just going to talk up through Chapter 14, which is Season 2, Episode 6, titled The Tragedy. We are not talking about anything in the future because we have not seen anything in the future, so there's no spoilers Mm. coming from us. Uh, though they may exist out in the internet. And uh, we will just be talking uh, about the episode that aired uh, Friday morning, this Friday morning. Um, yeah, Anthony and I did, if you, if you missed it, last year we did uh, an episode for every episode of The Mandalorian. We had interviews with the, the talent and the filmmakers. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a bonanza. It was a whole thing. Um, <laughs> but Lucasfilm, uh, you know... Their approach to the Mandalorian, um, and it has paid off for them, has been to like sort of keep everything very secret and controlled and locked down. And uh, this year, they decided to go even more locked down than before. Um, so, in in the theme of the lockdown year twenty twenty, mm-hmm. Mando season two was super locked down. So it didn't really make a lot of sense for us to do uh, a podcast episode for every episode of the show. But if you, but we were, uh, you know, we were lucky enough at Vanity Fair to get uh, one one of those precious kernels of inside information. Anthony Bresigan, who did you get to talk to about this oh. season of The Mandalorian? Yeah. Uh, so last week. Uh, after the Ahsoka Tano episode, The Jedi, I spoke with Rosario Dawson, who plays the this beloved character who's existed for years and years in animation, performed by uh, Ashley Eckstein, and uh, now in live action and in middle age, I suppose you'd say, since she's in her 40s, uh, Ahsoka Tano. Although who knows how long it took Gruda to live. She might still be in, Ooh, good point. in the spring of... <laughs> of a Togruta's life. 
What is the lifespan of Tagruta? Please do email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Yeah, so uh, Anthony and I are here to talk about The Mandalorian. Please do read that interview that he did with Rosario. It's so good. He's got, he, he also chatted with Dave Filoni for that interview. It's a great, great article. One of the like best and most in-depth um, I've read about no, the most uh, in-depth that I've read about this season of The Mandalorian. So, uh, you know, and Filoni gives some some extra added insights, which is which is really great. Uh, and also, if you're in the mood to learn more about Ahsoka Tano, uh, you know, who was obviously this big showcase of the middle of the season, um, Anthony did a great oral history on Ahsoka Tano uh, that ran earlier this year on Vanity Fair. So just Google Ahsoka Tano, Anthony Breslican, and you should be all set to go. Oh, wait. No, no. See, I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna mention your story about Ahsoka Tano, which I is the one I look. We're, this is like super mutual admiration society here. <laughs> but like, uh, I was gonna say it was a just a beautiful and profound write up, also full of spectacular gifts. You are quite. You're like throwing these gifts out like little ninja throwing stars <laughs> <laughs> of uh, Ahsoka and her history and the rich meaning she has for for all Star Wars fans, but um, especially for for women. I think who find special value in her in her journey and her story uh so google joanna robinson and find her ahsoka story her recent ahsoka story oh. uh, that, that came out just just as a little teaser as a as, <laughs> i hate to say appetizer because it was a it was a solid significant piece it was uh it was a, a a nice setup for who ahsoka is especially if you're like watching this show and you're like who is that because not everybody watches right. all things star wars there are there are some people who are, you know, casual, easygoing fans, and they are completists. And for those who haven't watched uh, the Clone Wars and uh, and Rebels, I think uh, Joe's story is a, a really excellent and thrilling and fun <laughs> and beautiful ride through Ahsoka's journey. Thank you. It's essentially a previously on Ahsoka Tano. Um, yes. <laughs> you can you can read that over on VF.com. Uh, you know, we've been doing weekly recaps. Uh, we didn't do one this week because, uh, frankly you know what? Uh, we decided to do a podcast instead. So that is what we're here to do. Um, we're going to talk about the first six episodes of this season. Uh, and and some folks were kindly sent me some questions over on Twitter. We're just going to dig into where we, how we think the show is going so far. Uh, is it evolving? Is it stagnating? Um, you know, I'm personally enjoying having this little treat on a Friday morning or really late Thursday night, the end of my work week. But um, some of the questions we got were folks expressing maybe some eagerness for the show to expand beyond its uh, original premise, which they feel maybe that's that's sort of where it's sitting. Um, but before we get to that, I wanted to start by asking you, Anthony, um, Something you and I have talked. I mean, we talk a lot about the show off air. We, we basically do a podcast every week. It's just as a broadcast. <laughs> it's just a phone call. <laughs> but like something that you and I have talked about, and you talked to Dave about this uh, a couple times, is this idea. Like, I like that you mentioned that there are plenty of people who are watching The Mandalorian and maybe have seen every Star Wars film, maybe seen every Star Wars film multiple times, but. There is definitely a subset of Star Wars fan that has only watched live action Star Wars, Mandalorian mm -hmm. and the films. Um, there, the animated series are very popular and there's a whole generation of kids who grew up with like, this is their Star Wars is, is Clone Wars and Rebels. Um, but there's also, you know, people who just didn't think that the animated series was for them. But I wanted 
to talk to you about this idea of in, was it before this, The Force Awakens, Lucasfilm made a decision about canon and what was canon and what wasn't. Because for years and years Mm -hmm. and years, there were expansion novels. There was all this sort of like lore that was out there. And Lucasfilm decided to like tighten up. And just be like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna narrow we're gonna narrow down <laughs> what counts as canon, what counts as legends. So, can you clarify for folks listening, sort of where that dividing line happened and and where we are with that? Yeah, basically, I mean, I'm not sure what they've recanonized. Like the line has gotten a little blurrier over the years, partly because of Dave Filoni, who really through Rebels brought back a lot of things that had been uh de- unpersoned <laughs> you know and uh i think it was a, a uh, it's a complicated answer but there's this line that yoda says in the clone wars uh and i think it's echoed by ahsoka where legends always have a little bit of truth to them and they call mm. this decanonized storytelling legends uh and what Dave has done is is bring back a little bit of truth to it, bring it into Rebels, and therefore sort of reactivate it, you know. Uh, and um, uh, I I think basically everything before the everything that wasn't uh, on screen before the uh, the Disney acquisition of Lucasfilm has essentially been eradicated from the mm-hmm. canon or like right. basically that's just a story that's just a legend um if i'm wrong about them keeping this piece or that piece uh forgive me <laughs> it's a big well, vast you're, galaxy you're not wrong because mm-hmm. what you've what you've already said is that they're like they've legendized all that stuff but they're they're cherry picking through what they've decided to re constitute <laughs> as canon yeah. right and even and- little things like there were these great lando calrissian novels um from back in the 80s i want to say uh not even the 90s but like the uh mid early 80s and uh in in solo lando and he's hang- when they're doing the mine invasion lando's hanging back at the millennium falcon and he's dictating his memoirs and so the thing that Donald Glover is saying is like taken from one of these novels. So, so like fun. it's like little things like that. Even the early early stuff, uh, they've they've brought it back in in ways. But then in the '90s, starting with these Timothy Zahn novels called the Thrawn trilogy, that was really the continuation of Star Wars when there was no hope of Star Wars movies in the future. This was Luke and Han and Leia after the events of Return of the Jedi cleaning up the galaxy, reestablishing order, and this blue-skinned imperial officer named Grand Admiral Thrawn was trying to essentially create, like, the First Order. They didn't use that term. And he was, uh, he was this, he had this, this, like, like, uh, I hate to say Smurf blue. It's even more radiant than that skin. He had these bright blue eyes, and we know that from the cover uh, of the, uh, of the novels, but, like, uh, most of it was in our imagination. It's like Vir- Violet Beauregard blue. Yes, very much. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And, um, you know, those novels were among the things that were like, okay, that didn't really happen. And and I think that was necessary in order to carve a new path uh, with the new films and, and, and determine what happened to Luke, what happened to Han, what happened to Leia, what happened to their descendants. 
And uh, you don't want to hamstring filmmakers by saying, by the way, here are 30 books and short stories that you're going right. to have to tie into. Right. Um, and so, yeah. So a lot of it, a lot of it's been, uh, I would say, like, it's considered, like, now maybe a first draft that's been put on the shelf. But then sometimes you pull things from those first drafts and put it in the new drafts. Uh, so stories yeah so you know all that's to say that something that i think that dave filoni has done uh and once again if you want to know more about dave filoni um i think people are you know people who haven't been following his career closely through the animated um star wars are are really i think starting to know his name better and better through the mandalorian but if you want to learn more um anthony's got some great stuff on dave filoni uh on vf.com but um this idea Something that Dave Filoni has done with the animated shows and now with Mandalorian in concert with John Favreau is really try to build a, a I don't know, I'm going to call it a net, a net around all the things that they're considering canon and making it feel coherent and everything feel important and valuable. And so something that I talked about uh, a bit in that Ahsoka Tano thing that I wrote was how... The Clone Wars is so focused on helping us better understand Anakin Skywalker, the good that was Anakin Skywalker, and so the loss of Anakin Skywalker. And Ahsoka Tano is very instrumental to that because she was his Padawan. And so, like, loving her and him loving her helped us love him, even if, you know, plenty of people love the prequel trilogy, but even if the prequel trilogy doesn't work for you and Hayden Christensen's Anakin Skywalker, I don't think it's Hayden's fault. I think it's just like, maybe we didn't get enough time with him. I don't know what it was, but like for plenty of people, that fall of Anakin Skywalker did not land the way that I think George Lucas really wanted it to. And Clone Wars goes back in and fills in the time between the second and third movie of the prequel trilogy and helps you understand what we lost uh, with Anakin Skywalker. And I think that's so smart. It's so smart to do that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the Mandalorian is doing something kind of similar in the gap between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy. Um, Not that it was set out to do that, because this is already in the works before some of the wheels started to fall off of the sequel trilogy for some people. But if you watch the sequel trilogy and love the force awakens, there was a division around uh, the last Jedi. I think it's a perfect film, but that's okay. And then the rise of Skywalker didn't work for a lot of people as well. If it feels like the Mandalorian is trying to reach forward and, you know, pull some of that stuff we saw what we think is like some Snoke in tubs uh, and, (laughs) and make it part, make stuff that maybe didn't work as well for us. Maybe the Palpatine thing, maybe all of that and make it part of this story that is working for us and reach back and make some of the stuff that happened in the past, you know, part of the story and work for us and just basically shore up the shakier parts of the star wars legend mm-hmm. not to put too all wrapped up in a very simplistic story about a dad and his little green son you know yes um i love that star wars has kind of has been doing this one of my favorite examples is from one of the recent novels at least in recent years uh i think it was 2016's bloodlines by claudia gray and i think you and i've spoken about this before yeah. but uh i think she's one of the best star wars writers out there uh 
you know, working in novels and short stories. And that story was about middle-aged Leia, like after the fall of uh, the Empire, set many years after, and she's, you know, older, she's uh, uh, leading the Republic, the New Republic, and no, and, and nobody really knows that she's the descendant of Darth Vader, <laughs> you know, which would be like this big political scandal, you know. Uh, and there's a scene in that that Claudia wrote uh, that where she's talking to one of her, uh, I think one of her guards or protectors, one of the main char- other main characters in the story. And, and they're talking about, oh, we heard that you used to like mock Grand Moff Tarkin by imitating his British accent. And that explains the <laughs> one scene in the original Star Wars where for some reason Leia has a British accent. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's funny. That's you know, so like you're just sort yeah. of like retconning this thing that's just an obvious error. error. Yeah. And, uh, and even like the, you know, the gold bikini, which I think is now considered problematic and it was really you know well liked by a lot of people for a long time uh but the term for that was slave leia which is an even more problematic thing to say these days um in particular and it that re uh renamed her actions there as the the hut slayer outfit (laughs) and like i love that it's like instead of it being you know a bit of exploitation which i think it kind of was uh um it was um it was like oh she you know she went undercover and she was this uh slayer <laughs> outfit so yeah i mean i still i still have my issues with gold bikini but i love hut slayer as a yeah. as, as a term as a concept i think that's freaking great but yeah. yeah the the thing that i i was comparing all of this um and and we are going to get into specifics of the Mandalorian. I just thought it was interesting to set the stage a little bit first. Is like something the my favorite example of like what I think they're doing really well here comes from another franchise, which is uh, the MCU. And I know I've talked to you about this before, but this idea mm-hmm. that like what Endgame did spoilers for the MCU, uh, what Endgame did, uh, <laughs> Endgame, which I like to think of as a series finale for the Avengers, um, in in using time travel. <laughs> And using uh, and and hopping back through its own franchise is making even some of its weaker links, like Thor: The Dark World, suddenly incredibly important. I mean, that's that's one of the, one of the smartest things the MCU did is send Thor back in time to the events of Thor: The Dark World, and suddenly, like that movie, which is considered one of the weakest MCU movies, is important to the end game of everything. Mm-hmm. And and so then and then. And so then when people are like, because people ask me all the time, like, oh, how should I watch the MCU movies or or are there any I can skip? And maybe I used to say like, oh, you can skip the Thor Dark Thor the Dark World. And now you don't feel like you can say that. No. And, and similarly with Clone Wars and Rebels, um, you know, to dust off an old phrase from the NBC lineup, everything becomes musty TV when Ahsoka Tano shows up, played by Rosario Dawson. And immediately, a bunch of people who haven't watched the animated series are like, who's this and why is everyone losing their mind over her? And then people are like, you gotta watch you gotta watch Clone Wars and you should also watch Rebels while you're at it. Um, and I've seen just a, an increasing amount of um, articles and uh, the like that are saying, like, these are the essential Clone Wars episodes to watch or these are the essential Rebels episodes to watch. And that was already true just by dint of the fact that we're talking about Mandalorians, we're talking about the Darksaber, Bo-Katan is here, you know, but when Ahsoka Tano shows up, it really just feels like 
hey, you got to go back and do your research. Dave Filoni's like, sorry, everything I did is essential, man. You got to go back and watch it. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. That's and I have I have no I have no problem with it. I'm just wondering if it if it lands that way for you as well. It totally does. Yeah. It's like. I mean, I don't think every episode is necessary, but there are so many important runs, everything from Bo-Katan, who we saw Katie Sackhoff uh, bring to life in live action. She also performed the voice of that Mandalorian warrior. Um, you know, there, there are runs of the story that I think are really important. I also think it's going to be increasingly important as we get an Obi-Wan series to know exactly who he was during the Clone Wars. I think that, that was his pivotal moment. And he was a supporting player in the original trilogy and a mentor and the wise old man. But this is how he became that. And so I think all of that is, yeah, it's essential viewing. All right. So let us talk about um, this season so far. Um, what What is the episode that has happened so far this season? So we've had the Marshal, the Passenger, mm -hmm. the Heiress, the Siege, the Jedi, the tragedy is the latest one. Um, is there one that stands out to you as this is this is what I want the Mandalorian to be? This is the Mandalorian at its best. Hmm. I would say the passenger for me and the Jedi. I really like the Jedi. I uh, I know some people didn't or they didn't like Ahsoka's look or they had issues with the direction. I liked the slower pace of it. I liked that it was weirder. It had a stranger vibe. I think Star Wars is best when it's weird. Um, uh, kind of like Guardians of the Galaxy, weird, <laughs> where it has yeah. a little bit of a sense of humor about itself. Uh, the Passenger had that for me. The fact that she was just called Frog Lady and never really given anything beyond <laughs> that. Like, like, like... Like that reminded me of the old walrus man and squid face, and, you know, snaggletooth nicknames that they used to give the creatures that kind of kind of stuck before they had the complicated like Star Wars names uh, in canon. Uh, it, I thought both of those were standouts and um, I, I loved seeing Ahsoka come to life. I think she's such an interesting person and, and, and character and fighter. She's so vulnerable in some ways because she has a very big heart. She's not a blue steel kind of uh, kind of hero. She, her her power is that she cares <laughs> a lot, and um, I love the way Rosario performed her. And I thought that that was an interesting combination, interesting fusion of the western with the samurai film, which both influenced each other in lots of ways uh, in cinema history, and they're coming together now in this sci fi story and uh, yeah those were some of my favorites how about you joe i i it's funny you mentioned that i uh, about the jedi i knew that like obviously because of conversations you've had with dave and and you know my own uh you know film literacy whatever it's worth i knew that there was huge huge samurai influences in the jedi uh but then a friend of mine i was just scrolling back through his twitter and he made this video that didn't get a lot of traction uh because he's, he's not like this isn't what he does for a living he just like sort of did it for fun where he did a side by side and maybe someone else has done this too but he did a side by side shot comparison of some things from the jedi and uh yojimbo mm -hmm. uh and it shot for shot like shot for shot some moments and uh, I just thought I I didn't realize it was that uh, detailed, and I, it was pretty incredible. And um, and what's funny about those shots in Yojimbo is um, 
you do see um, these strong gusts of smoky wind blow through Yojimbo, um, you know, sort of buffering against our hero. And um, I, I thought it was so interesting when you talked to Dave Filoni that his inspiration for the look of that episode was like the burned out, um, you know, Northern California, California fire landscape. And uh, that hits really hard for me, for mm-hmm. all of us who live in California, uh, for me who lives up up here near Dave Filoni uh, and, uh, I don't know. I, I was I found that really emotional and then really visually striking for that episode. And then this week's episode, uh, tragedy. Uh, I know a lot of Southern California folks are like, "Oh, hey, that looks like <laughs> many a foothill uh, near where I live in Southern California." Uh, so you know these these the you know we're used to these exotic desert jungle planets or whatever. But right now mm-hmm. we're getting a lot of uh, California planets, and that's mm-hmm. uh, that's okay. This this very much looked like where I grew up or where I live. Yeah, where I grew up, where yeah. I live right now. Uh, Santa Clarita has a lot of rocky hillsides like that that have like the green tufts growing between the exposed rocks so it looked very familiar very mash (laughs) for me uh yeah for me can i can i I rewind just for a moment because um you know for that rosario de filoni story uh i'll have to check and see what was actually published but like i spoke to him for an hour so there was a lot of stuff that didn't make the cut and you mentioning the comparison to yojimbo uh reminded me that he cited that film specifically so i guess that's as long as you cite your source it's not copying it's oh, I homage oh, I, did, I did not yeah, mean yeah, it yeah. as like copying at all um no, but he, he said a lot of what i did is an homage to the fact that my dad had me watching kurosawa films when i was a little kid yeah i mean i'm talking seven eight years old watching seven samurai and yojimbo you don't appreciate it as much then, but you watch it over the years and you're like, this is amazing and remarkable how well it translates and holds up. And Star Wars at its foundation is an expression of George's love of cinema as much as anything else. So we try to keep that tie in there, too. So I love that. that. A nice thing. Yeah. And I mean, like in season one, uh, the episode The Sanctuary, uh, you know, a lot of folks pointed out that it has it owed a lot to the Magnificent Seven, the Seven Samurai. Um, that that beautiful blend of samurai and western that exists in that story, um, and you know Star Wars, Star Wars, and you know at its heart is an homage to to samurai and western uh, storytelling. So it's definitely uh, a pastiche of all sorts of different yeah. mythology. But my favorite part of the Jedi. Uh, beyond sort of some of the conversations uh, between Rosario Dawson's character and Peter Pascal's character is that cut back and forth uh, between, um, you know, you, uh, I, I watched the episode uh, a little after you did on that Friday and you told me that Michael Bean was in the episode and I was like, Oh, so that, uh, before watching the episode, I was like, oh, so Pedro Pascal can have someone to fight while Rosario Dawson is fighting someone else. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because, like, usually that's what happens when you've got two ace fighters is you want them equally preoccupied in the final fight, right? And uh, what mm-hmm. I love about the juxtaposition of those two fights is you've got um, a gunslinger fight uh, in the street between the Mandalorian and this character played by Michael Bean. Michael Bean 
who I know best from a lot of his sci-fi work, but a lot of, you know, he's also in Tombstone, obviously. So he's done the gunslinger thing. Um, and I also saw like a shot by shot comparison of like some of the moves that he does uh, uh, in Tombstone versus like what they're doing. This sort of blaster uh, square off showdown that they have in the street. And then in the garden in that episode, you've got a very classic samurai uh, fight. And I just, and cutting back and forth between those two, I just thought was, was incredibly beautiful. Just really, really beautiful uh, filmmaking. Yeah, I think so too. So from like a filmmaking point of view, and Dave Filoni uh, wrote and directed that episode of The Jedi, from a filmmaking point of view, I think The Jedi is a real level up for the series. From like uh, me just having a great time uh, with this Friday morning cereal <laughs> that we watch, uh, it's The Marshall, the first one. I'm, and that's oh, partially yeah. because I'm a huge Timothy Oliphant fan, but like mm-hmm. I just, uh, I really loved uh, his addition to the series of Cobb Vanth. I loved the the Cray Dragon. I loved I loved all of it. I thought I thought that one was a really fun episode. So um, like fun fun with the Marshall, and then just like eerie and emotional and just really soulful stuff in the Jedi. Um, and it had a Tremors homage. So and that, that's that's worth mentioning. Too. I love Tremors <laughs> so much. It's true. Anyway, so uh so yeah, so that's that's the season so far. I think you and I are were um a little mixed on this latest episode. Do you want to talk about your your sort of like your broader feelings about the tragedy? Yeah, I'm not sure what the tragedy part is. Like is the, the loss destruct- of the child? Well, yeah, I mean he's taken. He's but taken. Like, is it that the race? Like I wouldn't call it, like is that a tragedy? Like, like I would say like the kidnapping or something. I don't I know don't, like the tragedy. I... I thought, oh my god, are they going to kill Baby Yoda now that we've learned something about <laughs> Baby Grogu? Excuse me. <laughs> um, uh, but I, it's interesting for a show that had for an episode that had so many like cataclysmic revelations that Boba Fett is alive, although we kind of guessed that from uh, seeing Tamir Morrison uh, appear in the uh, uh, first episode uh, of this season, uh, to seeing my favorite Fennec Shand come back, Ming-Na Wen, now with like a with like a cyborg belly <laughs> where she was shot. A cyborg belly and a fun orange helmet that makes it easier to swap in a stunt performer for her. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I love that helmet, though. I was like, I saw the helmet. I was like, I love this. Cosplayers are going to have a really good time with this. And also, it's going to make it really easy when I presume she's about to do a bunch of flips, which she did, which mm-hmm. is great. So Orange is Fennec's color. Like, what's what's Fennec the Fox, right? So oh, this orange streak. Like, even on the original, her original appearance last season, she had these orange threads woven in through her very complicated braid uh i love i i really like that character and Same. i hope we see more of her um and i like boba fett i always did i know everybody says he was a chump <laughs> back in the day that he never well, that he looked cool but didn't do anything cool he was sleek he was smart and uh you know <laughs> he had a he had a small role to play but an important one and now maybe he'll get a little bit more I don't think his armor fit too well, though. Well, okay, okay. So let's <laughs> let's let's talk about this. I, I okay. So oftentimes when I hear you talk about the Mandalorian, and I hear mm-hmm. other 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 guys your age, of oh, and I am very good friends with a lot of these guys. Mm-hmm. I hear you guys talk about the Mandalorian as if it's made specifically for you, not in an exclusive way, but just sort of like, oh my god, this feels just made just for me. I used to play with these toys, blah, blah, blah. And, and, um, 
Mike Ryan, uh, you know, who knows who knows a plenty about Star Wars, uh, made this observation about how old John Favreau is, what exactly which toys he would have been playing with, and why we we're seeing a lot of those characters recur even in the background in The Mandalorian, because the, this is the stuff of John Favreau's childhood, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, Star Wars for a long time by less uh, evolved uh, fans was, con- you know, considered very like white and male and bro. And, and there are ways in which I really push back on that. And I've heard you push back on it and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And Lucasfilm itself is trying to say like, no Star Wars is for everyone. All that being said, <laughs> when I watched this episode, which I, which I did like, I was like, okay, but this episode is for the people who bought the Boba Fett action figure before mm-hmm. Boba Fett appeared in the original trilogy because they thought he looked really cool and then he showed up and he didn't do as much as they wanted. And that's the whole story of Boba Fett is that he wasn't as cool as everyone wanted him to be. And uh, and then he, I thought he got to be tremendously cool in this episode. And I was like, th- like 30 years later, the kids he who bought that action cool. figure got their cool, cool Boba Fett moment, you know? Well, it's in- I think you're absolutely spot on with all of those points. And I will say, you know, as a dad now, as sharing uh, playtime with my kids, I have a son who's seven and loves Star Wars and he loves Transformers and he loves Ninjago and thing. He has his own stuff too. But like a lot of the stuff, a lot of these toys transcend generations now. And uh, one of the things I've noticed is little kids, um, they love to play. They love to make up stories. They're not great at creating characters. I think it's maybe maybe just the empathy it takes to create different types of characters. It, it requires a little more growing up, you know? Yeah. And um, what Star Wars and what, you know, I think what, what – uh, uh, My Little Pony and uh, <laughs> what uh, Care Bears and what uh, other toy lines do is they give you the characters and they tell you what makes them different from each other. And then you make up your story and in ways learn empathy that way and learn, you know, who the who the traitorous character is, who the who the downbeat character is, who the upbeat character is. And I think guys like John Favreau and Dave Filoni, guys like me, uh, Women like you, uh, we lo- we learn to tell stories by playing with the toys. And I think what you're seeing now is that manifestation on screen is a lot of the things that they grew up, they learned storytelling. And this is one reason I think a lot of fans care so much about Star Wars is because they were active participants in the creation of Star Wars. They learned storytelling by telling stories with their toys. And so now when you see that that transporter that Cardoon drove off the cliff and, you know, was driving through the canyon, that was just a toy. That was never in any of the movies. But it was a legitimate uh, Kenner toy <laughs> back in the day. Right. And it's been, again, that's one of those re-canonized things that they put into the show. Um, years ago, A couple of years ago on Rebels, uh, they stole some TIE fighters. And the Empire pushed a button, like a self-destruct button that made the foils on the TIE fighter pop off so they couldn't escape. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was a fixture built in to the actual toys because you know how they are, how they're structured. If you, if you push that too far, it, it would, they would instantly break. So I... to prevent kids from instantly breaking their toys, they made them like, like any, any amount of pressure causes them just to spring off. <laughs> and like, <laughs> and it was, uh, they built that into the show. So I think like kids learn 
storytelling through their toys, and that's what we're seeing in The Mandalorian. It's like a big, it's like a toy adventure in the backyard come to life, right down to the characters shooting at each other from little little rocky outcropping. <laughs> well, it's funny. I um, uh, you know, I was, I was watching the reaction to this episode, um, and I figured you know people would be really excited to see Boba Fett. Yes, a little thicker in his middle age, but like getting to, getting to like crack open stormtroopers like they were eggs with his like mm-hmm. various weapons. I thought it was incredible. I thought his stuff was incredible, um, and I thought Fennec Shan was incredible. Like I thought, like that gunfight, uh, and we should say this episode is directed by uh, Robert Rodriguez, who knows his way around a gunfight. Mm-hmm. That fight on the hill was a little long for my taste, but mm-hmm. there are moments where I was just like, I gasped. I was like, oh, this is so, this is so great. Um, but but what's funny is uh, when I was looking at people's reactions, they were ex- some people were as excited about Boba Fett <laughs> as they were about Slave One, his ship. And like you oh, talking yeah. about, uh, you know, kids and their toys and all of that helps me understand why Star Wars fans know the names of all the ships that are in Star Wars, which I don't. I did not play with Star Wars toys as a kid. Like, I watched the movies obsessively. I did not play with the toys. Like, I had had my army of Barbies. That was what I did. But, like, um... But if Barbie had a spaceship, I would probably know the name of it. Uh, so, you know, like uh, people being really excited about these ships, about the des- the the designation of the ships and being able to identify them makes sense that they have like an emotional connection to a toy that they had as a kid. That's really fun there, to think about. There's an aspect of Boba Fett that I really liked in this is that he's terrifying. He's got, yeah. a, bur- he's got a burned face. Like, obviously, I think that... We can imply we don't know what all ha- we never saw him without the helmet in the original show or in the original movies, um, but we can presume maybe that was his scarring when he escaped the Sarlacc pit. You know, maybe a little acid scarring, but he's scary looking and um, intimidating looking, and he's a little bigger. You know, what I liked when he put the armor on and it didn't quite fit was that this is a this is not the same guy that we saw back in the day. I, I thought I, I I think Demure Morrison he's a he's a broader-shouldered uh, uh, silhouette and, and figure and maybe a little more muscular than uh, um, Jeremy Bullock was when he played Boba Fett back in the day. Uh, but I like that he put it on. It was kind of like Indiana Jones putting on his hat after a big battle with some Nazis in the <laughs> desert. And, like, it's a little tattered and maybe doesn't fit so well anymore. But, like, the armor itself was scarred. It's it's oh, burned. You know, it's burned by acid. and. Yet it was it was important to him because his father was important to him, and that and the, and the fact that his father was a foundling was important to him. So when he puts it on, what I really liked, uh, I'm certainly not making fun of him, but I think uh, uh, what I liked about it not fitting exactly is I thought, oh, are they going to put put the armor on, and then he's just going it's going to fit perfectly, and he's going to look like the old Boba Fett. This didn't look like the old Boba Fett. This is the new Boba Fett. This is Boba Fett who's been through some things, literally through the Sarlacc. So I like that. I like that he's, I he's agree. changed. I agree. And I loved the way, you know, we saw his robes sort of, you know, when he initially popped up and in the early part of this episode. Um, I love that he kept the robes on. And so he like has mm-hmm. his plated, like, you know, he has the, the, the armor plating on his legs, but the robe over it, it looks like it, goes together really well and it Mm -hmm. gives him this like wilder 
look to it. Once again, I'm like, I'm always thinking about the cosplayers. It's like the cosplayers are going to have such a fun time. Like mm-hmm. I was just thinking of couples cosplaying as like older Boba Fett and Fennec Shan. Fennec <laughs> I was Shan. like, that's yeah, going to look so cool. cool. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I, I thought he looked amazing. I thought the, um, the weapons that he was using looked amazing and all that. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. We're going to talk about him emerging from the Sarlacc pit, actually. But I want to go back really quickly to something you said about uh, his father being a foundling. So my understanding, um, because my Clone Wars memory is shaky at times, but my understanding is that in the Clone Wars, they tried to say that Jango Fett and Boba Fett were not Mandalorians. And then in this episode, he's saying, no, my father was a foundling and he fought in the Mandalorian Civil War. We are Mandalorians. So what's you know which is fine that all sounds to me like some legends are you know there's a truth to some legends and like you know depends on who's telling the story and stuff like that um i you know i think of that less as a retcon and more as like uh just different different uh angles on the same story but but it seemed like a big moment for some folks watching this episode to have boba and Django like quote-unquote legitimized as mandalorians i kind of think mandalorian maybe is not so much a it's not a genetic designation it's right. not a race right right you know you have people of all different races as mandalorians it's uh an ethos right it's like a calling it's i don't know if it's maybe it's like it's like uh uh i mean a faith right and so you don't but, necessarily have to be born into it which i knew i knew from season i knew yeah. that when we talked about this a lot in season 1 but what's interesting is, like, even that has its permutations, as we understand yeah. through, like, meeting Boba Katan in this, ep- in this season and stuff like that. It's like, I thought, okay, what defines you as a Mandalorian is the way that, that mm-hmm. Din Djarin keeps talking about. Um, but his way is not everyone's way, and it doesn't make the other people not Mandalorians. So, I don't know. It's just, yeah. It was just funny because I remember when <laughs> – I remember when – the series is announced and a bunch of people are like, oh my God, this is going to be a Boba Fett series. And, and John Favreau was like, no, I promise the titular Mandalorian is not Boba Fett. People are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, fool me twice, whatever. Um, but then a bunch of people came out of the woodwork to be like, actually, Jango Fett and Boba Fett aren't Mandalorians. So they couldn't be the Mandalorian. Um, so I just think this is like a fun, like, well, actually, they are, you know, or well, actually, the definition of a Mandalorian is is a little bit more complicated and nebulous. But the I like that it fits with that Mandalorian ethos of which we talked about a lot when we talked about season one, this idea of like adoption and caretaking and foundlings and raising like if if Grogu is, you know, if he sticks with Din Djarin, which he might not, but if he does, is Grogu a Mandalorian? is raised found and raised by a Mandalorian. Is he a Mandalorian? You know? Hmm. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Is he gonna get, get a little... they're gonna have to cut some ear holes in that. Gonna get a little hell? <laughs> I don't know. All right. Um uh, I... you know <laughs> yeah. can I say well, well I don't of know if this is any of the filmmakers in- intention. 
But within this story, this particular aspect of the story, what defines a Mandalorian, I see symbolism for what makes a fan. Right? Oh, okay. So, you know, you have these, speaking of, you know, bros or whatever, like guys, guys, you know, I don't know if it's just guys, but a lot of the times it is. You know, they they love something and they want to make it exclusive to them, right? right? Like, you're not a true fan. Right. You hear this a lot in comics, too. Like, you know, a Thor movie comes out and a woman goes into the comic shop and says, I like that Thor movie. Do you have any good Thor comics for me? And you think a true fan would say, yes, I'm glad that that intrigued you. Here's, you know, you got to read this classic run and here's this story and here's this character that you might also like. And it's a chance to really play the deep cuts, you know? But instead, it's like, oh, well, let me test your knowledge, you know, and ask a bunch of questions. And if you can't answer that, you're not a true fan. And I think women in Star Wars have had to deal with that garbage for a long time. And um, people very various different backgrounds who find a connection to the to these stories, you know, they get challenged. Like, well, you're not a true fan. If you just came up through the prequels, well, you're not a true fan. If you just came in through, you know, the animated Clone Wars series, you're not a true fan. You're a true fan if you're a true fan. And I think that's one of the things that the Mandalorian identity is really um, <laughs> I love that. projecting. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Like, yeah. if, you, if, you, if you follow the way, if you think the helmet and armor is cool, uh, if you do things, the, if you believe and care about the same things we do, you're a Mandalorian. Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> It's interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been trying to, you know, I'm I'm a Star Wars fan, but I'm like, you know, as I said, I didn't have this, I didn't have the toys. I I am I'm primarily, I didn't read the the novels though. My sister did. Like I'm a primarily like a live action Star Wars fan, and like. Uh, so I get, I do get frustrated sometimes when people try to gatekeep, but at the same time, I know there is pleasure in being able to talk about minutia of something. If you spent years and years and years and years sort of drenched in these various extended stories, um, I, I was, this I was trying fun. To... like what we're, what we're doing now, what we're doing now is sharing it with people and like exactly. there are people who are like, Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that no, there no, was no. a short story about Boba Fett escaping from the uh, Sarlacc <laughs> pit that, you know, it was a legend and now it's canon. But I don't understand this desire to close off no, something. No, exactly. Um, I just, I don't understand it in music. Like a band gets big and uh, and suddenly it's like, well, you didn't listen to them when they were just playing clubs. No, know? I think, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's my point. I think there's like a middle ground. Like I think gatekeeping is bad on any level. Um but I was I was trying to think about it in terms of Game of Thrones. Like Game of Thrones is the fandom that I probably know the best. And I am not like, you know, a PhD expert in the writings of George R. R. Martin, but I've read all of his books and I've studied them and I think about them a lot. And I could talk minutia about Game of Thrones in a way that like maybe not your average Thrones watcher can, though I certainly get lapped by plenty of other book readers. But like but so there's pleasure in being able to talk about the minutiae with people who also understand the minutiae. But I would never say that someone who just watched the show is not a Game of Thrones fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that's the difference. It's like, you're still a fan. But I still think it's okay. You know, I was, I was thinking about it like, I was thinking about some of my friends who like to talk to other people who understand Star Wars on the on the molecular level the way that you do 
And I was a little like, hey, why don't you want to talk to me? And then I was like, no, I get it. Like, they want to talk to someone who understands, like, all the, like, tiny, tiny character details that I might miss. But they, you know, none of them are awful bros and they would all, like, share it with me if I asked them about it, you know? So that's sort of the difference, I guess. Can I tell a little personal story? Yeah, please. My wife is a uh, huge comics fan and she loves Iron Man especially because when she was a little girl, she had heart surgery. And uh, her big brother, Grant, shared his comics with her as she was growing up. And she really loved Tony Stark because he had heart problems. That was his whole thing. He needed the arc reactor to draw the metal away from his heart. (laughs) I don't know how medically accurate that is, but, like, she connected with that. She loves that character. And it's funny because Robert Downey Jr.'s performance reminds her of her brother. Like, he looks a lot like him. Same sort of demeanor. And I think, thank God for those big brothers who were willing to share things with their little sisters. And, you know, and, and, and even like Katie Sackhoff talking about playing Bo-Katan, like she did this interview with uh, Entertainment Tonight's Ash Crossan. And, and I, the part I found most moving was she was talking about how excited her dad was to see her in the role. Because her dad was this huge sci-fi nut who shared all this stuff with her. Star Wars was a thing he shared with her. And, um, you know... His daughter grew up to be a hero in Battlestar Galactica and in Star Wars. So um, I think that sharing, in, to me, enhances your love of something. And what's better uh, than showing your love for a kind of storytelling than sharing it with the people who, who you may love or who may be strangers to you? Yeah. you know, that's part of what you and I do for a living is to share stories with total strangers and hopefully excite them about the making of it or uh, the story behind it. And, um, you know, that, I think that's true fandom. And my, my favorite thing to do, like, I don't, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Sometimes I don't know how to describe what I do because I'm not a critic and I'm, and I don't even think of myself really as an investigative journalist, but what I do, my favorite thing to do is to give people the context that might help them find better or, or deeper meaning to something. Right. So, yeah. so something like that, a thing that I wrote, that's about me just wanting people to be as prepared and excited as they can be for the arrival of that character or like all the stuff I did around Thrones had to do with that had to do with like me trying to be like, okay, here's what happens in the books. And this is why this, this means something even a little deeper than you might be able to catch if you just watch the show, which is like no shame in it, but just sort of like, if you want, if you want the deeper meaning, I would love to to share it with you. Um, Yeah. Okay. We tell yeah. the story of the storytelling. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. All right, so I want to talk about um, – we, we're going to get to – people have a couple Jedi-related questions for us, and we're going to get to those. But I want to spend another minute or two on Boba Fett and talk to you about a fun thing that I discovered uh, prepping for this conversation, which is something that um, our our producer, actually, Dave Gonzalez, said to me offhandedly. Is he was like, well, you know, they, they took the – the plot that they had for the Boba Fett movie and they used it in the first episode of this season. And I didn't really know what he was talking about, but oftentimes when I don't know what people are talking about, I don't say anything and I just go Google it for myself. And, um, and I found that, uh, you know, there was a rumor that a version of the Boba Fett movie that they were planning to do with, uh, Josh Trank, centered on someone else who had taken the Boba Fett armor. And so like, that's sort of what Dave was saying. Like the, the Timothy Oliphant character, Cobb Vanth, who has taken Boba Fett's armor is, you know, is not Boba Fett, but is Boba Fett at the same time. But what's fun is that I was reading something and they were like, 
EW reported, and I was like, oh, I know if I click on this link, it's going to be Anthony Bresican byline, and it was, uh, where you actually broke the news about uh, another, um, at least another, or maybe complimentary idea of what the Boba Fett movie was going to be uh, with Josh Rank. Do you remember that that uh, scoop that you had? I could, I'm not sure which one this is, but like I remember way back in the day, I got a scoop about they were making spinoffs and I reported that there was a Han Solo and a Boba Fett movie in the works. And then I had to wait. I mean, I knew it. I had it dead to rights, right? Or else I wouldn't have published it. Yeah. But then I had to wait like years for them to confirm there was a Han Solo movie. And, uh, you know, Josh got bounced from, uh, the Boba Fett movie. The day, like the day celebration. (laughs) He was supposed to go. Yeah. Remember when they showed at Celebration that little clip of Rogue One? Yes. And it was like, you know. That was so uh, awkward. The Death Star and the, uh, and, 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 and he was supposed to show a, pre- a little preview clip of yeah. the Boba Fett movie. And uh, so I don't know if that's the one you saw, but then I also did some reporting on the, uh, uh, you know, James Mangold taking on the Boba Fett movie. And then there was, you know, Josh Trank leaving or not leaving, but the calamity of the fantastic four film <sighs> yeah. which you know had some details about the boba fett movie well uh, so, what, yeah, yeah one, sure. one of the reports you did the, the one that i read at least was about this idea of like uh the film would explore boba fett and the other bounty hunters that we see uh you know darth vader talking to um in the original yes, trilogy that was yeah gonna, i think they were, that was part of the idea was you know, you would weave in yeah these other you know, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another example of a kind of movie like this where they're sort of like like all sorts of other grifters or, you know, underworld figures that you have to navigate um, in order to get to your goal. But I kind of so think they were, I kinda you know, want... they have Bosk. Bosk is ageless, IG-88. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of like that this is a, um, so, you know, having Boba Fett show up would be interesting having Boba Fett show up with Fennec Shan like by his side and they're like bonded partners now is much more interesting to me I think that's a really interesting duo I I do too I mean also look it's just a storytelling tradition or trope or whatever you want to call it that you need a sidekick you need a Dr. Watson for your genius or for your hero um Everybody needs a, a Robin or else you're not explaining the story to anyone. So yeah, um, I like Fennec. The thing I think is cool about Boba Fett and Fennec is Boba Fett's a bounty hunter. Fennec is an assassin. Yeah. <laughs> She's not bringing you back alive. That's true. That's true. So I think there's a nice little bit of, atten- of tension there. She's a hit woman. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, all right. Let's talk about Boba Fett coming out of the Sarlacc pit. And another point that our producer Dave pointed out to me when he was, we were talking about the prevalent theories of who might have rescued baby Grogu uh, from the youngling class before Anakin Skywalker shows up. So basically we find out in the Jedi that um, Grogu was training with the other younglings uh, on Coruscant uh, when Order 66 went into effect and Anakin Skywalker famously killed a bunch of children, um, Grogu was whisked away and we don't know by whomst. And I was wondering what theories you had heard or had. And then I, if you don't mention the one that I heard, I won't chime in with that. Okay. So I, I haven't done too much reading on this, to be honest, um, of what the other theories are. But my feeling is it... <clears throat> 
I mean, it's one of two options, right? It's somebody we know or somebody we don't. And somebody we don't is an opportunity for um, a new kind of storytelling, right? If it's somebody we know, it's like, oh, okay, this, the world gets a little bit smaller and it's connected to this character or that character. Um, I think, uh, I don't really know, but I'm trying to think who would have even been around at the temple. Right to rescue little Grogu. I mean, maybe it was Yoda himself, right? So you're, Wasn't you're, he at the temple? Yeah, I mean, he was a little he busy, was... but like, no, 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 he shows up after. Doesn't he show up with Obi-Wan? Or Obi-Wan shows up. Oh, sorry. Guys, oh, we gotta um, we gotta rewatch Revenge of so the So much for I, my cred here I because apologize. I can't remember now. But, but Yoda's pretty busy at the moment, uh, you know, it, when, when all of that is happening. Um... I thought that I my memory is that Yoda and Obi Wan at the same time discover the like that they're both in the not the younglings uh, scene, mm-hmm. but I could be wrong. Um, do you want to hear? Yeah, let's hear your theory. Okay, it's not my theory; it's Dave's theory, and Dave I think got it from other people. <laughs> and then I'll, I'm going to take you through a whole journey of this conversation. He goes, Mace Windu. I was like, dude. Mace Windu's dead. He's already out the window at that point. He's like, right, but everyone we've seen thrown out the window or down an air shaft or into a Sarlacc has come back. We didn't see his body hit anywhere. He's like, Palpatine came back. Boba Fett came back. Darth Maul came back. He's like, what does throwing someone down something mean in Star Wars? And I was like, oh, no. So how do you feel about Samuel Jackson, a.k.a. Mace Window, being the one to save uh, baby Grogu? Maybe. I mean, I think Sam would be like, he would use an expletive and he would say, <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> uh, but he, um, I'm back. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like it. You know, I, I think uh, maybe it was like the, I was going to say maybe this is a little more obscure, but like on the, in the seventh season of the Clone Wars, Ahsoka was living on the lower tiers of Coruscant, this met- metropolis planet mm-hmm. um, where the Jedi Temple is located. And she palled around with the Martez sisters who, you know, yeah. they didn't think much of the Jedi because they were living a hard life in the lower tiers. And um, I don't know, it'd be kind of neat if it was somebody we knew, those two would be, that'd be kind of a neat story. See them, you know, they hear there's trouble and they get up there somehow and rescue baby Yoda. But Mace Windu, that's an interesting theory. Maybe they did it together. Uh, apparently, like I was sort of digging into it, and apparently like George Lucas and Samuel Jackson have previously said that they think Mace Windu is alive. Uh, and apparently there's some rumors that Sam Jackson could be in uh, The Mandalorian. So, you know, I don't know. I I, I personally kind of love that theory. Um, you must have lost him at some point then, right? I guess. I mean... I don't know. Maybe, yeah, that's like Val Kilmer and Willow. Who knows? Oh, speaking of, by the way, I, I rewatched Willow uh, last week. I don't know if you if you're listening and you've never seen Willow, what have you been doing with your life? But uh, it, now yeah, is your t- with now is your time to course correct. It's on it's on Disney Plus. A, fa- a favorite of my childhood. Um, Willow, starring Warwick Davis and Val Kilmer and um, Joanne Wally and all that sort of stuff. It's great, 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 great film. And I showed it to some people who had never seen it before, and they loved it. So it's not just my childhood nostalgia talking. I like wept through it. It's a beautiful movie, uh, fantasy at its best. Um, 
it's essentially the Mandalorian. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't put those pieces together, but Willow is basically the Mandalorian, except you've got an adorable uh, redheaded girl child instead of a little green baby. So, there But you which, is, which character is Mando? Would it be Willow himself? Mando is like a combination of Willow and, uh, and Mad Mardigan, I think. Yeah. Um, because, because I mean, something I did want to say that I liked about this season of The Mandalorian is I feel like we're getting, like, some, I felt disconnected from The Mandalorian in season one. And, and maybe part of that was how often Pedro Pascal was, like, not actually in the suit. Um, I know there's still plenty of, of doubling going on in this season, but I feel like we're getting so much more of his personality. And partially that's story-based in terms of his personality is growing and changing as he grows into his role as this father. Right. We like this episode starts with him just like chuckling over playing force fetch with his baby. You know what I mean? I love when he's like, yes. Yeah. And, the, and the and the and Grogu is like, ooh, like, did I upset you? And he's like, oh, I'm not mad. That's cool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I just I feel like that's something that I really like is I feel, you know, Pedro Pascal is so can be so charming. And I felt like he had to be so stiff in season one. And so I'm like, I like that we're getting a bit more of warmth and personality from him this season. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. So that, you know, that growth feels very Mad Mardigan <laughs> in Willow to me. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas Willow is just a good dad from the start. Um, and then, uh, all right. So then let's talk about who we think Grogu might be signaling uh, in this episode, you know, uh, Ahsoka says, maybe if you take him to this temple on top of the hill, uh, send out a, a signal into the galaxy, maybe another Jedi will see it and come train him because I, Ahsoka, do not feel up to the job. Um, there are some theories floating around. What is your favorite? Who do you think is coming? Who do you want to have come? What do you think? Luke Skywalker. Okay. That's a, th- that's a common theory. Yes. Uh, some people think. Uh, some people in think. The form of Sebastian. Yeah, Sebastian Stan yeah. as Luke Skywalker. Sure. Um, I don't like that, by the way, because I like. You don't like the replacement actor. No, because I mean, him? Sebastian can do whatever, but like, I don't. Um, and and some of those side by side photos of Sebastian Stan and young Mark Hamill are uncanny. True. Mm-hmm. But I like that there's no Skywalker in this story. Yeah, and I would I'm, like to. Keep I'm it that down way. with that. You know what I, I mean? I think that's okay. Yeah. Um. I mean, who else is left? There's Ahsoka. There's um, uh, yeah. There's Ahsoka and there's Luke. I think the and I like, think the main theory outside of Luke is Ezra, Ezra Bridger, oh, who Ezra hasn't been Bridger. mentioned by name in the show yet. But people who know uh, Ezra, who is a character in Rebels in the animated series, um, know that he was last seen with Admiral Thrawn, and that's who Ahsoka's looking for. Is mm-hmm. and, and she's Ezra. clearly tracking. I think it's obvious she's tracking Thrawn to find Ezra. Ezra, right? Uh, that's a that's a good theory. Though I just don't know. Like, what's funny about what happened in this episode is like the t- I thought the temple <laughs> was going to be the season finale, and the season finale instead seems like let's get a band together and go rescue the baby. Like that's probably seems like where we're, where we're heading, and then yeah. maybe the final moment is a Jedi shows up. Right. And you're like, oh, shoot. So-and-so's here. But like for people who haven't seen Rebels, it's not going to be an oh, shoot, Ezra Bridger, who I've never heard of, is here. You know what I mean? And so like maybe it is Luke. I don't know. But I feel like they're saving like an oh, shoot, this Jedi is here. 
Um, and, and are they going to bank on people doing their homework and being excited for Ezra? Or are they going to bank on people being addicted to the Skywalker saga and do Luke? I don't know. Or is it going to be a third option? Who knows? But. So he sends this beam up into the sky surrounded by blue butterflies, which also seems to be symbolic. I know that's a common symbol for Ray Lowe's online. What does the blue butterfly symbolize otherwise? Or is that, just, is that it? I don't know. Do you think yeah. um, Ben, so- ben Solo's blue... coming? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> just, I don't know that that makes a lot of sense. But... I don't think it makes a lot of sense. No. I mean, like... the number one reason why I don't think it would be Ben Solo is... he would be a little kid. He's eight... Well, yeah. Well, then you could get someone else to play him. Because I'm like, Adam Driver's like, I'm done. I'm pretty sure Adam Driver's done with Star Wars. Um, but... Yeah, Luke, Luke, Ezra, baby Ben, maybe could be. Um, I I wanted to to talk about that uh blue beam into the sky moment, uh, because it reminded me a lot of one of my favorite shows of all time, uh, Avatar, and occasionally the Avatar will go into something called the Avatar State, uh, where they will sort of like leave their body, and there's like in the season one finale of Avatar and a couple other times, like basically his pals have to protect his body. While he is gone. Um, and that this reminded me of that a lot. Like the the baby is so defenseless because he's like gone, basically. And Fennec and Boba and uh, Din Djarin have to protect that body. Um, and Dave Filoni directed, that's how he started, was on, on The Last Airbender. Last Airbender, yeah. Mm-hmm. So a very, a very Avatar moment, I felt like for, mm-hmm. for okay, we're I'm almost, we're almost done. We've been yammering probably long enough. Um, I just have a few other things that I want to say one question we got repeatedly from people is uh, that they, that they felt like the sort of serialized um, quest of the week thing was, was wearing thin for them. Where does that yeah. sit with you? I think so. I think they start to feel like, uh, like little quests in a video game is the criticism I've seen. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Hey, if you help me get this, then you can have this and, continue your journey um yeah uh, i'm not sure what you want there to be action and i think that what they're going what they're going for is a little bit of resolution to every episode um and you see him looping back like it feels like the world is you know like having fennec shan show up you don't have to introduce her we know her um, he's looking, you know, find at the end of this episode, he's looking for Bill Burr's character who we met in season one. Every time he goes back to Cardoon, that's a familiar character, you know, stuff like that. So like the, the, we don't have to re-meet everyone every week anymore. When Amy Sedaris shows up this season, we already know who she is. So it's slowly populating this world with figures in a way that doesn't make it seem like they're sort of, uh, shaking the Etch-A-Sketch clean, uh, every week, um, like they were in, in season one. But I, I you know, mm-hmm. I could, I think a lot of my favorite shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Justified, like these shows started as extreme monster of the week, like almost procedural type stories and then mm-hmm. became something much richer. And so I think there's potential for the Mandalorian to do that. Um, but I also think that Favreau and Filoni like the idea of giving us a very simple, you know, I keep self-contained story each time. Yeah, Saturday morning serial sort of thing. By serial, I mean S E R I A L. Yeah, that has me thinking. Maybe the Jedi who shows up at the end is oh, Doctor Mandible. <laughs> 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 he was really good at cards. <laughs> 
I love it. I love that. Um, I mean, maybe maybe he had the force working, or maybe it's Frog Lady. Maybe she's she was a, a Jedi the whole time. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I really want to see. Put a, she put a tracking device inside Baby Yoda through one, <laughs> <laughs> one of her eggs. I really want to see those frog people again. Um, and then uh, the other question we were asked a couple times. And I have been thinking about this is like because of the setup, because of the various uh, characters we keep meeting along the way, it feels like almost any one of these episodes could be a launch pad for a spinoff series. It does feel that And way. I'm sure that that's, you know, very intentional on behalf of Lucasfilm that is looking to build out their empire in a way that didn't work for them necessarily in the films the way that they had originally planned it to. So uh, if you were to pick one Disney Plus show to create as a spinoff of this show. What do you, Anthony Breskin, what would you want to see? Hmm. If I were to create a spinoff of a character we've seen already. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's a really good question. And I don't have an easy answer, but probably my mind goes to Fennec Shand, you know, I'd like to like see Fennec and Boba or just Fennec. More or less her. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think, you know, not just her, but I think that underworld, that underworld element would be interesting. I'd like to see a a Star Wars crime story. I'd like to see them start doing things with genre that uh, uh, right now there's the Star Wars genre and everything fits into that. But Marvel always, uh, not that everybody has to imitate Marvel, but, you know, you know, they tell a Marvel story, but they make this one is a like a paranoid seventies thriller, yeah. and this one is like a nineties action movie. Yeah. You know, Captain Marvel is like a nineties action movie, and the Winter Soldier is like a you know a paranoid seventies thriller. <laughs> Robert Redford's um, even here. Wow. What's that? I said Robert Redford's even here. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Precisely. So, um, I kind of think like right now what we have is like uh, we have like the western, like the have gun will travel. Yeah. I mean, he's he lives on like outside the law a little bit, but he's still sort of a lawman in in some ways. He's rounding up bad guys and he's doing the right thing. I mean, like imagine a Sopranos style show. <laughs> like it's just but they would never go star... that dark, you know. On they Disney Plus, that, they wouldn't go that dark. <laughs> but like, but this is a story about the bad guys, and you empathize with them, but they're bad guys. Yeah, you know, they're trying to leech off of the New Republic and steal ships and like run heists and commit crimes, you know, family-friendly crimes in the Star Wars universe, where but where you have this assassin as the lead character, and she's super charismatic, and she doesn't wear a mask all the time, so we can have her, you know, um, uh, making her way through the, uh, the, the underbelly of the galaxy would be kind of fun. You know, she'd have to be, she'd be given these tasks to take people out, and, uh, you know, assassinate a hut here, uh, take out Dr. Mandible there. <laughs> It'll so be great. Currently, we have the Obi-Wan series coming um, and the Cassian Ander uh, series coming, right? Yeah. And I think my, I would place good money on an Ahsoka series. Right. Um, that's that seems not like based the on like, any inside the, no, no, information, no, no, no. The but just like yeah. my, my sense of it is like they're. They like that character, and people like that character. Dave Filoni loves it. Like, Dave Filoni talks about that character like she's his daughter. Like, I... He does. <laughs> I, I, I would agree with you. Uh, if I were to pick a character... 
Yeah, let's hear yours. I mean, what's tough is like I like your I like your pitch that like it should be a different genre. I don't have a good answer for that because what I really just want is more Cobb Vanth. Um, but that's just more Western. <laughs> so um, I don't know, but I'm a big Cobb Vanth fan. So I would love to see him do something. Uh, and and as we know, uh, since he's done it twice already, Timothy Oliphant can hold down a gunslinging show. So um, I don't know. Uh, you know, Space Marshall. Like... Space Marshall would be good. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think. Anyway, if you if like if folks have other ideas, we're gonna do one more of these, as I said, for season two. If you have a spinoff idea, if you're like, oh, we got to go back to the sanctuary, or like, oh, you know, Cara Dune, I want that, or anything like that, um, please email us stillwatchingpod at gmail dot com. By the way, if you're listening to this and you're like, why haven't Joanna and Anthony mentioned the various real world? Um, sort of i don't i don't want to say the word scandal the conversations we're having controversies controversy is the word around uh two of the actresses who are on the mandalorian this season we have written about them this kind of extensively over at vf.com so if you want our take on that you can go read that we've sort of not that the conversation's over it's just like i think that's the best rather than just talk extemporaneously in a podcast that's their best most well-researched take on this question could... We, we address it in the Rosario interview as well, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and I want people to know that, uh, you know, Joanna and I, is it okay to say we're, we're doing our best to make sure that all perspectives uh, in this fandom get represented and, yeah. and that um, the questions that you want to have asked are asked. Yeah. That's important to us. Absolutely. All right. Is there anything else Mandalorian season two that we want to talk about? I mean, Lori in general. Mm. Uh, the so the this season, like last season, is largely credited as written by uh, John Favreau. The exception being uh, last week's episode, "The Jedi," was written by Dave Filoni, or credited. You know, it's it's complicated in TV crediting, but like credited to Dave Filoni. And next week's, uh, according to Wikipedia, at least, is credited to uh, Rick Famuyiwa, who did, uh, who's also directing. And he did one of the episodes. Well, he directed two of the episodes, but wrote one of the episodes in season one as well. Um, so do you have any expectations about what Rick, you know, might be up to? Uh, He's one of my favorite directors in this show. Mm-hmm. And so he did the heist episode. Right. So, And I believe he did uh, where, well, which, okay, so if they're going after Bill Burr's exactly. character, that's right up his alley. Yeah. And I... I believe he did the second episode as yeah. well or was that deborah chow no he did the second did episode the second. she did the third one yeah <clears throat> um yeah uh he's fantastic mm-hmm. and uh his love of this genre and this universe it just comes radiating through he's a fantastic director and great with action so let's see i'm down for it i'm excited to hear yeah that. if we're doing another sort of like prison heist or <laughs> do we need to like boost bill burr out of prison this time or whatever uh uh, Rick's your guy, I guess. So here we mm-hmm. go, back into the heist uh, for the penultimate episode. Um, and then is there anything we want to say about like Moff Gideon and the cloning and the trauma of them? I don't know if you saw. Okay, so you were like, "What's the tragedy?" And I'm like, "Taking the child is the tragedy of this episode." But like, I don't know if you saw the the uh, you know how they do. Of course, you don't. Know, they do the concept art over the mm-hmm. end credits. The shot. Uh, the concept art shot of them of the of the uh, dark troopers taking uh, the baby 
and the baby's face was way worse in concept art than it was oh, in no. execution. The baby just looks yeah. so upset and traumatized. And like, of course the baby is still upset and we see the baby throw some stormtroopers around upset. Um, Oh yeah, he's man. Yeah, I don't know. He's Grogu handling those <laughs> stormtroopers, like banging them around the the cell. And I, I thought it was a little scary when Moff Gideon ignites that dark saber and gets it a little close to the kid. You know, I thought um, it's not cool. That was one of my. That's some of my favorite uh, Giancarlo Esposito acting in the series so mm. far, though. Like Giancarlo acting opposite that puppet is some really good stuff. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> really menacing, but really like cutesy at the same time. Makes you oh so sleepy. Um, oh so sleepy. Oh no, not don't you don't get to touch this. Just yeah, and then yeah, they he... shot the baby and put it in little baby shackles. Like that's um the that's the thing about this episode. Like once again, I agree with you. I feel like it's kind of a, a mixed bag because I I do think that like shootout took up way too much of the episode. But like um for 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 the for the old school diehard fans who are like, finally, my Boba Fett moment, I'm having it. I finally get it. For folks who are maybe newer fans or just sort of latching to the Mandalorian or whatever, you also have this very like primal story of this baby separated from this dad who loves him. And you're very concerned for the baby. So there's just like, there's there's a fundamental story here that you can understand, even if you have no context about caring about whether or not Boba Fett gets back in his armor or not. You know what I mean? So Yeah, for sure. There's a humane yeah. element to it. Yeah. And also lots of nostalgia. You mentioned the Dark Troopers. That's one thing we didn't address. That's from a uh, 90s era video game called Dark Forces. You know? And it's, again... There's been a lot of video game stuff. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've, a lot I, of video games. So. I've, I've played zero video games. There's a lot of video game references on this, which is, mm -hmm. you know, fun. Yeah, I mean, to, to circle back one last thing before we go, if that's okay, um, to this sort of like... We're, we're like Star Wars Columbo here. One last thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of the story of the week, I don't know. Did you see that, that viral video that's going around? A couple people sent it to me about uh, this is the plot of every episode of The Mandalorian. It's like a guy and his dog. Did you see that? No, I haven't seen it. It's very short. And it's just sort of like, I mean, I don't want to describe a video to you, but it's like basically it's a guy, his dog, They he put like a filter on his dog so his dog looks green and he like shows up to a new planet and they're like, um, he's like, I need that milk for my baby. And the guy on the planet's like, you need to kill our monster slash warlord slash whatever. And then we'll give you the milk. And Mando goes, okay. And then he does it. And then he comes back and he goes, milk, please. Oh, oops. Baby Yoda already drank it. The end. Like, and I was like, and he's like, that's every episode of the Mandalorian. I was like, I mean, I can't argue honestly with that. Um, wildly entertaining every time <laughs> yeah but like but the best version of that and like it just feels like really low stakes television to me once again maybe because i usually watch it at either midnight or like way early in the morning and so i'm just sort of like i'm just sort of like it's star wars i don't know i'm 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 happy enough to be in a star wars world could it be more probably but is it enough for me right now in december 2020 uh yes it is sparking joy for me so that's where i am um all right Anthony Breskin, until you come back in a couple weeks to talk about hopefully the rescue of baby Grogu, uh, where can folks yeah. find your work? You can find me on VanityFair.com. Uh, uh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And on Twitter? That's where it is. Uh, yeah, sure. 
<laughs> I'm on Twitter at Bresnikan. At Bresnikan. All right. Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com as well. Follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Uh, we will be back with one more episode of The Mandalorian, and Richard and I are doing one last episode of The Flight Attendant. And then that will be it for 2020. Uh, and we will see you. Uh, and Baby Grogu, safe and sound. Uh, I'm going to manifest that into the world uh, in a couple weeks. Bye.